Thank you, Danny. Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, I'd like to invite you to turn over to John chapter 8, if you haven't guessed that already. Last week we started John chapter 8, and we saw the, really got a look at the depth of the deceit and the lies uh, of the scholarly world uh, back in Jesus' day that, that reached a new level of, the only way I can say it is satanic, satanic hatred of the Word of God. Now we saw last week, after all the things that they've done, all the things that they've said, all the accusations, the lies, now they have stooped to the lowest level of actually using a woman to set him up. And in the process of doing that, completely violating the Word of God just for the purpose of getting to him, all to get rid of God's truth. Then, and the same way it is now. <clears throat> I've told you and I've made it no secret that I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a history buff. I love history. Military history is my forte. I really enjoy that. Um, for a number of years, I'm not even sure they publish it anymore, but I probably have 200 of them that I kept. Over the years, there was a magazine that was called After the Battle. They actually produced a number of books that on different aspects of World War II and World War One, and the After the Battle magazine was its its sub theme was then and now, and they actually went back and <clears throat> found the actual pictures of of events uh, of taking place, battles, people, wherever during World War Two, and then found the exact same place some 30, 40 years later showing you the, the, the changes. Much of it was really the same. And showing you that what was then and what was now. And I was, I was fascinated by it. I, I couldn't wait for the next issue to come out. It only come out every other month. And then when all the books came out, boy, that, they, they had one on the Battle of Britain. They had one on Normandy. They had one on the Battle of Baltimore. And they actually went and found these places and then showed you the actual place during the war. And then in the 70s and the 80s found that exact same place. It was incredible stuff. And then told you the story that, that, that went along with it. I've always felt that my Bible in a spiritual sense did the same thing. It showed me then and now. It showed me the way things were at the first coming of Christ and the way they are today for you and for me at the second coming of Christ. We have talked about it. The Bible shows you and me Noah's time, then, and then now. As it was in the days of Noah, so shall be in the coming of the Son of Man. It shows you the lot in Sodom and Gomorrah, then. But then it also shows you now. As it was in the days of Lot, so it shall be in the coming of the Son of Man. The Bible is a great history book that presents, if you're paying attention, if you know how to use your Bible in a historical sense, it will show you the then and the now, the way it was then and the way it is now. And the reason it does that is because of the great 
principle and truth that I've tried to instill in you over the years is history always repeats itself. You want to learn what's happening today, you go back and see it happened in the past. And that's, uh, that, that is so vital in everything that we do. And as I've said throughout our study, some things never change. In time, some things do change. But in reality, nothing really ever changes. And we, we you know, the Alexandria cult, the yea, hath God said society, they're still with us today. They may have wore robes and sandals back then and wear three-piece suits with ties and shoes, and uh, they may have walked or rode donkeys back then. Now they've got, uh, you know, cars, and, and, uh, but they're the same crowd. Nothing has really changed. Many times we lose sight of things like this because we get fooled by the change of the venue of clothes, transportation, the way it was then, and we think things actually change. Clothes may change, mode of transportation may change, human nature never changes. And the same people who hated the Lord Jesus Christ, the Word of God back then, will be the same crowd that hates Him today. Some things never change. And uh, we saw how that Christ held them accountable in an amazing way with the Word of God. The finger of God. Well, we talked about that last week. What an incredible aspect that is. The great principles out of the Old Testament that he, he probably Deuteronomy 22, uh, verse 22. And it's the same way today. The thing that keeps everybody accountable, no matter where you're at, will be the principles of the Word of God. We finished up yesterday our second week of leadership training very intense, uh, two weeks of just really hitting it, boy, and taking anybody in this church who wanted to. And I explained to them that I knew that coming into leadership, we were going to have, you know, three levels. We're going to have the older guys and gals that are really hauling the mail that will help you be better. Then we have the midline people who really are, um, you know, really on your way. And then I was pleased pleasantly pleased to see so many of you young men and young ladies that just has gotten saved. And, and you don't want to miss anything. And you want to be part of that because you want to get all that you can get. And I, I explained it, you know, that uh, I just in good conscience cannot just tell some people you can't come. I would rather open it up to anybody that wants to come and then allow you to either prove yourself or not prove yourself, and you decide. That way I've got a good conscience toward God. I gave you the best shot I could. And that's my job, basically, in whatever we do, is to give you the best shot I can. You have to decide if you're going to take the shot or not. I can't do that for you. And the Bible tells us that Jesus stooped down and with the finger of God wrote on the ground. And we talked about, as I said, Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 22 is probably what he wrote. But whatever he wrote certainly got their attention. You know, what's interesting. The story says that it's the finger of God who writes in the dust of the ground. You know, I thought about that all week long after I read that last week, and I thought to myself, what a great 
What a great picture that is and how interesting that is that the finger of God writing the Word of God in the dust of the earth. You know the Bible says that man was created out of the dust of the ground? Genesis 2-7. To me, that's a picture of the finger of God bringing the Word of God down to man. And when he wrote that in the dust of the ground, he's writing fundamentally the Word of God that he gave to man. It was an incredible thought. I, I like... I don't care much for the Roman Catholic art. I think some of it is good and some of it is not so good. But one that always intrigued me was the painting by Michelangelo where I think it's on top of the bathroom in the Vatican, the Sistine Chapel or whatever it is. <laughs> and it's a thing where it's got God's finger touching man's finger. Remember, ever see that? Now, I know that's kind of goofy from the Roman Catholic standpoint, but I... I got to tell you, I kind of, I kind of like that, because that's actually what happened. Uh, you know, I mean, I know the Catholic Church is screwed up, messed up, and we don't believe anything that it says. But you know what? Even a broken clock is right twice a day. So I, I like the idea of God's finger touching the finger of man, because that's exactly what He did. Now, I can't stop there because as the world progressed. And the Antichrist, and these are great keys you get when the Antichrist is going to take over the world and he wants you to believe Noah as it was in the days of Noah, so shall be in the coming of the Son of Man. The sons of God came down in Genesis 6. They're going to come back down again. So as I've told you many, many times, the devil through the mystery of iniquity has been preparing this world for the sons of God to come back and the Antichrist to come back. So when the movie E.T. came out, E.T. being extraterrestrial. I don't know if you've ever paid attention to it, but there's over 20 parallels between little E.T. and the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, the movie E.T. wanted to subtly bring the world into an understanding that E.T. probably was Jesus Christ. I don't know if you know it or not, but E.T. was an alien, not from Mexico, he was an alien from outer space, so he didn't have real parents here. You know that when Jesus Christ came, he was an alien from outer space? You know that Jesus' adopted mother here on this earth when he came the first coming of Christ was Mary? You know in the movie, E.T.'s adopted mother's name was Mary? All the similarities. When E.T. is in a little hospital there and he's dying... If you pay attention and you, 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 you look up at the clock in the emergency room, it's the exact same time Jesus died on the cross. And when they wanted to, I don't have time to go through all of those. It's quite incredible. But on the marquee that they wanted, they, they really sold the movie, it was the Michelangelo painting of the finger of God touching the finger of E.T. Very subtle. Very subtle. You don't have to pay extra for that. I'll just kind of throw that in if you buy the car. But it's a thing where, you know, it's that finger of God touching the dust of the ground. Picture of the Word of God coming to us. Then after all of this story, and you remember I told you, hey, boy, if this doesn't show you some things. You know, the story runs from chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. 
And in that story, you see all the wickedness, the lies, the deceit, the, the depravity of the, of the Sadducees, the Pharisees, how they're corrupting and using the Word of God for their own guilt gain, how they're setting this thing up, that they're totally against everything that Jesus Christ is doing. I mean the lies, the deceit, the sinfulness, the envy of these religious leaders. And then our modern-day Sadducees, Pharisees, have the guts to try to tell you that that story shouldn't really be in your Bible. I guess so. If I was a scholar, I wouldn't want that verse to be in the Bible, you know, that passage to be in the Bible either. They're protecting the brethren. And I'll tell you, some things never change. The demonic scholarship of today helps out the brethren back then. And then in verses 8 and 9, and this is where I want to focus today, we see the reaction to the pure Word of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, written with a finger of God coming down to man, written in the dust of the ground. And verse 8 and 9 says, And again he, Jesus, stooped down and wrote on the ground. And they which heard it, scribes, Pharisees, and Sadducees, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. Now, Father, we ask you today to help us pull all this together. Give us the wisdom and insight of your word, the Holy Spirit of God. Forgive us where we failed at you. Put us under the blood. Give us the clarity of thought today. Make the scriptures come alive that we might be able to see and understand all that you do have for us. We love you, and we pray that we give you this time that you will use it to teach these your people. We thank you for the tremendous crowd for the last two weeks of young men, moms and dads, the men and women of this church who want to help cake this thing over the top. And Lord, I, I thank you for that. And pray, Father, as we continue to build and work and do what we do, You'll continue to build these men and women in this church to be part of this ministry. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name for his sake we ask it. Amen. Now, the Bible says that when they hear it, they're convicted by their conscience. And today, I want to give you another piece of the puzzle. You know, um, when you get into stories in the Bible like this, you're going to find sometimes that within the story themselves that represent a complete picture of something, which we have been laying out, you're going to find that within that story, sometimes there's another great doctrinal teaching that needs to be unearthed. Sometimes there's more than one. But in our study last week, it was obvious to me that when the Bible talks about them being convicted in their conscience, that I needed to take some time and try to help you understand some things. And today I want to give you another piece of the puzzle of life on exactly what your conscience is and how it works. And I think that, you know, we, we hear things about ourselves, but we don't always understand how it applies to us. And so I want to take this idea of a conscience and I want to try to walk it through the Word of God and show you all the pieces 
not only of your physical body, but of your spiritual body. You know you have two bodies. You have a physical body, which is your flesh. Look at the person to the left and the right of you. You've just seen the evidence of that. But inside, you have another body. That's a spiritual body. We're going to talk about this here in just a little bit. Now, let's start with what we do know and work our way out. And uh, we know that God is a trinity. And God is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. I'm going to go very slow. You'll be happy to know I won't yell today. Boy, I yelled yesterday, oh, didn't I? I'm not going to yell today. I have no voice left. I'm just going to, I want you to get this. So I'm going to take my time, going to walk you through it, and you, because I want you, you have to understand these things at some point in your life. So let's just start where we're at here in John 8. We know that God is a trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And we know that when God made man, originally in the garden, Genesis 1.26, he says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. I get questions all the time that somebody says, wow, in Genesis 1 it says, let us. God said, let us make man in our image. Who's the us? Who's the our? The Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. They're speaking as one here. And the first thing you need to know that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are three different aspects of God, but they're all God. They have a different function and a different work, but they're all one. So when God made man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, God made man a trinity. He gave him a body. He gave man a soul. And he gave man a spirit. Now, the best way I can illustrate this, and I've used this for years, and it's a simple illustration, is you take a football, basketball, take a tire in your car. Well, I can't use a car in a car anymore. I don't think they have inner tubes anymore. But anyway, take a football or a basketball. And you got the outside pigskin covering of a football. That will be your body, your flesh. But on the inside of that, you'll have a rubber inner type tube that is the exact same shape as the outer pigskin, but it is separate. If you would cut that, you could pull the inner tube or the inner piece out of the thing, and that will be a picture of your soul. Your soul is your spiritual body that is just like your physical body. You have another body inside you. One is physical, that's your flesh, and one is spiritual, that's your soul. I've heard for years and years and years guys tell me that lost a leg in an accident or a hand in an accident that they feel like their, their leg or their toes or their feet are itching, and they don't have one. It was cut off. See, you can cut off the physical leg, but you can't cut off the spiritual leg. It's still there. Now, don't try to walk on it. But it's still there. But it's spiritual. So the first thing I want you to understand that we have to begin to identify here is that you, or Adam, when he was created, had a body, soul, and spirit. Now, what happens? Adam sins. When Adam sins... He loses, in essence, the image of God, which is spiritual, immediately. But then he also, uh, uh, he also uh, keeps the, loses the likeness of God in time. 
In other words, when Adam was born or created, he's the only man who was never born, when he was created, he looked just like Jesus Christ. He had a body, he had a soul, and he had a spirit. When he fell, something changed. And he loses the image of God. And by the way, in the Bible, defined for you, the image of God is Jesus Christ. So he loses God's image, and now he just has his own fallen image. And here's what happens now from this point on. And you need to understand this. We're going to, I'm just taking my time so you can, you can get this. Now, Adam was created as a trinity, body, soul, and spirit. When he fell, something changed. What changed about him was now that sin had come into the world and sin had destroyed his spiritual body and his relationship with God. So now, Adam and every unsaved man down through the Old Testament and every unsaved man and woman today has a body and still has a soul. But now they're stuck together. They have become one. He still has a spirit, but now he has a dead spirit. It's not able to communicate with God. It's not able, I mean, 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, the natural man, unsaved man, receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. Neither can he know them. Why? Because they are spiritually discerned. He now does not have the ability to communicate or fellowship or have any kind of relationship with God because he lost the image of God and now his soul and his flesh are stuck together and his spirit is now dead. So now he's only two parts He's incomplete. I don't know what you know about the Bible, but you should know if you've been around here any length of time that in the Bible, the number three is the number of completion. Everything in life is not complete till it has the third part. And of course, uh, when a man or a woman is unsaved, they are incomplete. They have a body and they have a soul that is stuck together, and then they have a spirit that is dead to the things of God. And, of course, that's why he cannot grasp the things of God. Okay? Everybody understand that? Next step. That's the condition you were in before you got saved, by the way. The reason why before you trusted Christ as your own personal Savior that many of you have done here just in the last couple of weeks or months, you know, I want to talk to you about what changed about you. I want you to understand it. I want you to see and be able to realize what you were the second before you trusted Christ as your own personal Savior and then what happened instantaneously the moment you asked Christ to come into your heart and save you. You need to know these things. <laughs> Nobody knows these things today. We're a Christianity of, of terminology. You know that? We have a lot of terms. And we use the terms but we really don't know what the terms mean. I asked a guy one time, I asked him, I said, tell me, what happened the moment you got saved? And he said, well, I got born again. I said, I didn't ask you that. That's a term. What happened the exact second you asked Christ to come into your heart and save you? He said, I was saved. <laughs> That's not what I asked you. I clarified it. What changed? Here you are at 9.30 in the morning. 
unsaved. You ask Christ to come into your heart and save you, it took a minute for that prayer. What changed from 930 to 931 inside you? That's really the key. You see, born again, be saved, washed in the blood, that's all terminology. That doesn't tell you what changed. That doesn't tell you what happened. You need to know, as a child of God, what did change from 930 to 931 inside you. The Bible says, well, now you're a new creature in Christ Jesus. Well, congratulations, but how did that happen? I mean, what did you do? I mean, what, 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 did, what inside you, what changed? That's the key. And you need to know this. And when you talk to most Christians, they don't know. I, I'm not saying they're not saved. But, I, I, you know, I mean, it's a lot like me with, with cars. I got two guys here that every time there's something wrong with my cars, I call. They're really proud of me because a couple of weeks ago I actually changed my own battery out and hooked the terminals on the right ones. Fired that sucker right up. I was proud of myself. But I'm telling you what, I drive a car and I have a car, but if you ask me to break down a combustible engine and show you how the rods work and the camshaft works and the rotor thing works and the alternator works and the, and the, and the deal works, uh, I, I, I wouldn't be able to do it. I've always admired the guys who could start a car with a screwdriver. Yeah, Sam knows what I'm talking about. You know, you're driving down the freeway and there's this little honey on the road where their car won't start. You walk up. Hi, darling, what's the matter? My car won't start. <laughs> Open the hood. Pop, put your... Never open the hood. Pop the hood. Let's take a look at it. She opens the hood. Mm-hmm. You have a screwdriver? Yes, I do. He takes that screwdriver, puts it down inside that engine, and says, try it now. And it fires right up. God, I wish I could do that. I tried it one time, burnt the end off the screwdriver, melted the handle, and was in the hospital for two days. I'd love that kind of stuff, but I don't know how to do it. You see, most of God's people are with their own salvation like I am with a car. You haven't got a clue what happened under that hood. And that is unfortunate. I can live with you not knowing how what's going on in a car, but you need to know what happened the moment you got saved. We use a lot of terminology. And unfortunately, we don't use it. So, there was a day in your life when you got saved. Now, here's what happened. It's real easy. Here's what happened. When you, before you were saved, your soul and your flesh were stuck together. It was one. And you were going to, if you would have died, your soul would have went to hell. You know why? Because your soul was connected to your flesh, and your flesh is sinful. And that's why the Bible says the soul that sinneth, it shall die in the Old Testament because in the Old Testament, the soul and the flesh were stuck together and when a man died, he went to hell. And today, nothing changed. If you're unsaved or you're unsaved here this morning, your flesh and your soul was stuck together and your soul, which is eternal, your body, connected to your physical body, which is sin. When you die, 
your soul because of the sin it's connected to goes to hell and then later on dumped into the lake of fire. I want you to know that. So, when you got saved, Jesus had to figure out a way to fix that. And he figured out a way. You know what he did? The moment you got saved, there was a process that entered into your inner being that was instantaneous, but it could go A, B, C, D, E, F, G, just like that. But it was just like that. The first thing that happened is that when you ask Jesus Christ to come into your heart and save you, the Holy Spirit of God does come in. But what does he do? Because your flesh and your soul are stuck together, and he can't deal with that. So you know what he does? He cuts. He separates your eternal soul, your soulish body. He cuts it loose and separates it from the physical body. Now, in the Bible, in Colossians chapter 2, verse 11, this is called the doctrine of spiritual circumcision. Let me read it for you. He says in verse 11, in whom also ye are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now, that's New Testament. That's not Old Testament physical circumcision. That is a New Testament spiritual circumcision. And then the next verse, it's called the operation of God made without hands. Now, I'll stop here for a second, give you a nice little parallel. Back in the Old Testament, Abraham and Moses was given the, the, the doctrine of, of, of a literal circumcision. On the eighth day of a male being born, they took that baby boy and they physically circumcised him. They circumcised him on the eighth day on a part of his anatomy that had to do with birth and that it was that circumcision that Israel did. None of the other nations did it. Circumcision was to Israel physically and that set them apart physically from all the other nations, the, 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 the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Klingons, all the rest of them. But it's a physical thing. This is why they call the Gentile nations in the Old Testament the uncircumcised Philistines. Because physically, they're not circumcised. Physically, Israel was. Now, that in the Old Testament, physically was a picture of what happened to you in the New Testament spiritually. It's on a male on the eighth day. In the Bible, the eighth day or the number eight is the number for new beginnings. So that baby boy was physically circumcising you on a day that spiritually represented your circumcision on a made you a new creature in Christ Jesus. It was done on a part of his anatomy that it had to do with seed because when you got spiritually circumcised, it was by the seed of the Word of God. And so he comes down, and before your... <coughs> 
saved, your flesh and your soul are stuck together, and through the operation of God made without hands, through the doctrine, Colossians chapter 2, verse 11, He cuts loose the body of the flesh from your soul, separates it, then the Holy Spirit of God comes down in that instant and seals your soul, the eternal part, with the Holy Spirit of God. Now, at that point, the Bible says you are a new creature in Christ Jesus. Old things are passed away. All things become new. Now you have two natures. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 7. Now you have the old man and the new man. You have the old flesh and you have the new creature in Christ Jesus. And the two does battle. Anybody have any... Don't, you, don't, you don't have to give me your graphic details. But anybody have any little, little, middle, middle, big spiritual battles this week? <laughs> Nobody. Praise the Lord. Well, you're quite the people. You know, lying, you go to hell for lying. You do know that, don't you? <laughs> we all have. Everybody had issues today, this week. Where did those issues come from? They came from the fact that you got an old sin nature that likes to sin. And now you've got a new nature that wants to love God that is sealed with the Holy Spirit of God. And the two do battle. Battle back and forth. That's why Paul says in Romans chapter 7, he says, the things that I should do, I don't do. And the things that I shouldn't do, I do. Oh, wretched man that I am. He understood the battle between the flesh and your soul. Now, we're all good so far? I know, I'm amazing, I get it, but just bear with me here. I want you to understand it. I'm taking my time, breaking it down, and this is how I had to learn it. And you're going to leave here today understanding probably the greatest single doctrine to you as a Christian of what really transpired the day you got saved. Okay, now. Now the Bible says that once that happens... It says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 10, now you're complete in him. See? Well, before you weren't. You were incomplete. You only had two parts. Now he separated those two. Now you're three. Now, your spirit at that moment of salvation comes alive. Where before it was dead to the things of God, now because the Holy Spirit of God has taken up residency in your body, what? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God. You're not your own. You're bought with a price. When that Holy Spirit of God came in, it made you a new creature in every aspect. It separated your flesh from your soul, and then it gave your spirit life. And now you're complete where once your soul was connected to your flesh and you were stuck to it, now your soul is connected to the Holy Spirit of God and you're separated from your flesh. You have to understand the two bodies of man. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1 says, here it is, For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, that's your physical body, we have a building of God made without hands, eternal in the heaven. There's your spiritual body. Okay? You have two bodies. You have a physical body that I'm looking at, and you have a spiritual body, which is your soul, 
that I can't see. Now, we have a lot of terminology today. As I said, that uh, most Christians really don't understand, and many times it makes things more confusing. And what I try to do in everything that I do in my teaching, and I learned this a long time ago, <clears throat> I, try, I follow a simple rule. Keep it simple, stupid. I don't do anybody any good <clears throat> if I lay stuff out that you don't understand. So I do for you what I had to do for myself. I had to break it down, <clears throat> you know, where I could get it. So we have terminology like the soul of man, which now you understand. We have the terminology of the flesh of man, which now you understand. We have the terminology of the spirit of man, which we'll clarify even more here in a little bit. And then you hear terms like the heart of man, the mind of man, the conscience of man. What exactly are they? How do they relate to these two bodies that you have? Because you have a spiritual body and you have a physical body. Now, I'm going to tell you this. Yes, you have a physical body and you have a spiritual body, but you also have a physical heart and a spiritual heart. See? You also have a physical mind and a spiritual mind. And the conscience is based on your understanding of how all this works. So let me illustrate something to you. Let me give you a great illustration of your two bodies. Turn over to Luke chapter 16. This is a familiar story. I'll show it to you in, in great detail. <clears throat> it says, 1619, there was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus which was laid at his gate full of sores. This is the famous story of the rich man and Lazarus. And desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table, moreover the dogs came and licked his sores. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom, and the rich man also died and was buried. And in hell he lift up his eyes, being in torment, and seeing Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receiveth thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. Now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed, so that they would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. And he said, I pray thee, therefore, Father, that thou wouldest send him to my father's house. For I have five brethren, that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. And Abraham said unto him, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went to them from the dead, they would repent. And he said unto him, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. Now, the thing I want you to see here <clears throat> is that the Bible tells me that the, that the rich man died and clearly tells us that he was buried. Now, that was his physical body. His physical body consisted of his body, his arms, his legs, his head, his eyes, 
it still had his heart inside, though it was not beating anymore. It had his brain, which is his mind. It wasn't functioning anymore. And he's dead and buried in the ground, his physical body. But yet his eternal body, his soul, which evidently was stuck to his flesh and never got separated, he's in hell. I want you to notice, in hell he has eyes. In hell he speaks. In hell he has a mind he remembers. He has all the qualities of being alive, yet his body, physical body is in the grave dead, but his soul body is in hell and has all the faculties of remembering, talking, seeing, feeling pain, and, and communicating. Clearly showing us that we have a spiritual body, which is your soul, and you have a physical body, which is your flesh. And when you died with them stuck together, you're just like the man in Luke chapter 16. Your body went to the grave, but because it was stuck to your flesh and it's sinful, the soul that sinneth it shall die, and his soul winds up in hell. That's the way everybody in this room was before you trusted Christ as your own personal Savior. The moment you got saved, the operation of God made without hand, the doctrine of spiritual circumcision, which, by the way, is rejected by every Bible scholar in the world today. If you went to a Bible college and brought this up, they would laugh at you. They would scoff at you, just like they did with Jesus. Some things never change. But if you ask these guys to explain what really happened, they would not be able to do it. They'd give you some scholastic baloney cut off for suckers. And uh, the more you stay around, the more bologna sandwiches you'll make, and pretty soon you'll have a diet of it. They couldn't tell you, but I'm telling you, because this is what transpires. Now, with all that, let's begin to define some things from the Bible about your inner man. And first off, I want to be, be complete here. We don't probably need to spend a lot of time on this, but first off, let me, let's talk about man's flesh. In your flesh, there's no good thing. Your flesh is the source of every problem, every temptation, every sin, every downfall, every walking away from God, ever losing your fellowship with God. It goes back to your flesh. Inside your flesh dwell a no good thing. It's a, when we talk about the depravity of man in Romans chapter 3, where there's none to do with good, no, not one, have all come short and fall to glory of God and all of our righteousness, Isaiah says, as filthy rags in the sight of God, that's your flesh. Paul talks extensively about the flesh. Nothing good about it. Totally corrupt. That is why you have to be loosed from it to ever have any victory in your life with the Lord Jesus Christ. Because if God did not devise a way to separate your flesh from your soul, your physical body from your eternal body, God could never fellowship with you because God's holy God and he can't fellowship with anything that's sinful. You remember back in the Old Testament before God came down and walked through the camp to deal with them? They had to remove everything that was sinful in God's sight or he wouldn't come down. And you know, sitting here this morning, if you're going to receive anything out of the Bible, you've got to do the same thing in your camp. You've got to get rid of all the ungodly stuff out of it or God ain't going to give you anything. See how it works? Not hard. Not complicated. Now, the moment you got saved, as I've said, 
God separates the flesh from the soul, and your soul is now sealed with the Holy Spirit of God. And now you're a new creature in Christ Jesus, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. And now you have the ability to have fellowship with God. Now, the way that you do that is through the next part of your inner man that we're going to talk about. But I want to say this before we move into the next section. Your flesh never gets better. You can't trust it. You can't feed it. You can't pamper it. All you can do is crucify it. And uh, it's a thing where uh, it's, it's always going to be the source of our problems. Now, the next thing I want to talk to you about is, now that we got the flesh out of the way, let's talk about your spirit, the spirit of man. Now, the Bible says that God breathed into the nostrils of man, and man became a living soul. The life that you and I have, the breath of life, is the spirit that's inside us. Whether you're saved or whether you're lost, you have a spirit of man. This is what drives man. This is what, when a man gives him the endurance to climb Mount Everest. This is what man's spirit is what drives him to accomplish great things. Or if he's trapped in the desert, it, it, it's his mode of survival, the spirit of man. Whether he's saved or whether he's lost, it's the driving force of life that every human being has. But if he's unsaved, it's a dead spirit. It may get you through the desert. It may get you to the top of Mount Everest, but it'll never get you to heaven. Something has to change. Now, the Bible says that in the Bible, there's four spirits. You need to know this. There's four spirits that we're told about in the Bible, and you and me as a human being can have three of them. Now, the first spirit mentioned is in the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 3, verse 21, and that is the spirit that's in an animal. An animal does not have a soul, but all living creatures have a spirit because the spirit is the life that gives that creature life. So your dog, your cat, your horse, your canary, whatever the case may be, it has a spirit. The second spirit is the spirit of man that you have whether you're saved when you're unsaved. You have that spirit. It's the driving force. The third spirit will be the Holy Spirit. And the fourth spirit will be an unclean spirit. Now, as a man or a woman, you don't have the animal spirit, but you do have the human spirit and that human spirit then is influenced one way or the other, either by the Holy Spirit of God or by the unclean spirit of life. And when a man gets saved, God gives his spirit life through the Holy Spirit of God that comes and dwells inside his soul and is sealed and now the man has the ability through his spirit to fellowship with God. In fact, the Bible says in Romans chapter 8, verse 16, that it's my spirit 
bearing witness with God's spirit inside me that I am a son of God. In other words, my fellowship is based on my understanding of wherever I put my spirit to, either the Holy Spirit or an unclean spirit, that's where I'm going to go in my life. Before you were saved, you had no option. You had an unclean, dead spirit in you that the only spirit that it could fellowship with was an unclean spirit, not God's spirit. When we talk about worship, worship is another word that is thrown around a lot that nobody really understands today. The Bible says in John chapter 4, verse 24, that true worship is, is we worship God in spirit and truth. Your spirit in God's truth is biblical New Testament worship. Well, you can obviously see the problem. If you don't have the Word of God, you don't have any worship. So, you know, your ability to have a relationship with God will rely on your spirit becoming one, or you giving your spirit to His spirit, or you give your spirit to an unclean spirit. Now, when a man who is saved, we see it all the time, he won't yield his spirit to the things of God. He won't read his Bible. He won't study his Bible. He won't come to church. He won't do anything. He won't get discipled. He won't get anybody helping with his problems. What he does when he won't yield that spirit to the things of God, then he yields it to the wrong spirits and it goes to the world. The spirit of man, here it is. I gave you the football as a type of the body, soul, and spirit. Here's a good example on your spirit. Your spirit is like the rudder of a ship. You'll have an aircraft carrier that's 600 yards long and weighs over 60 million tons, but it's turned left or right by a little rudder that's just a small portion of the size underneath the water. And if you turn the rudder this way, you go one way. If you turn the rudder this way, you go this way. The captain up in the wheelhouse gives the order to starboard or to port. The guy in the wheelhouse, the yeoman, he turns it one way or the other based on the captain, and that's the direction the ship go. The question today is, who's the captain on your bridge? Who's in the control house of your ship? If it's the Lord Jesus Christ, he'll say, Turn that spirit toward the Word of God. And you build a relationship. If he's not the captain on the bridge and something else is, somebody else is, or something else is, you turn that ship, your body, toward the wrong things and you go toward that spirit. See how simple that is? Not hard. Now, having said that, let me even clarify it a little more. Your spirit is your mind. When we talk about the mind of man, we're talking about your spirit, not your soul. Your mind is your spirit, and you have the free will of that. You choose which way you're going to turn that rudder, your spirit. One of the things that, if you study the Bible, there's some things that will really influence your spirit, right or wrong. One of them is music. Music always will go to and deal with directly to your spirit. You say, how do you know that? Because when David had an evil spirit from the Lord, what did he do? Or Saul, what did he do? He called for David. 
David played some of uh, his songs that he had written. And the Bible says when he played that music, the evil spirit left and the Spirit of God came. Music is one of the most graphic illustrations of what you listen to affects your spirit. If you listen to the things of God and His music and the things that it ministers to your soul, you're in the right direction. If you listen to Three Hog Night and the animals and the beasts and the buzzards and all that stuff, if you turn that spirit toward the things of the world, that's how it's going to affect you. Most young people don't know that, so they think that... And you know why? This is the trickery of the devil. This is why in most churches, you don't have choirs anymore. You don't have godly music anymore. You have rock bands now who play music that is really outside everything connected with the Bible. If you know anything about the book of Colossians, music is defined for you, but who cares? We left the Bible a long time ago. And the thing is, you know, every time I preach a message, I'm sure there's people out there or maybe people here that they don't like what I say or they don't agree with what I say. But you know what the, f- the funny part is? If somebody put a Bible in your lap and put a gun to your head to prove what you don't like, showing me in the Bible, your brains would be all over the wall. You know nothing about the Bible. You've lent your spirit to the wrong spirit. See, that's how it works. Don't tell me anything about it. I've been, <laughs> hey, I've been around the block and bought a few houses. So you want to see now that the Bible says, Romans chapter 8, verse 27, it talks about the mind of the Spirit. See, it's your mind. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16 says that we have the mind of Christ that needs to instruct us. See? Philippians chapter 2, verse 25 says, tells us that we're to let this be in us, which was also in Christ Jesus. See? So you have a human mind, you get saved, your soul gets separated, and now your, your, your spirit comes alive and can fellowship with God. Now it's depending on if you allow this mind, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Word of God, to be in you and take instructions from that mind, that spirit, into your spirit, your mind, or you do your own thing. Not complicated. Now, we are told in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 23. See, when you got saved, you were sealed. You were sealed in your soul for all of eternity. You're sealed under the day of redemption. You don't ever have to worry about your soul. But that's not true of your spirit because your spirit was not sealed. It came alive, but it's still your free will process to decide where you're going to put it. And that's why the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 23, that we have to renew our spirit daily. How do you do that? Staying in your Bible, staying in the Word of God, listening to the right stuff, listening to the right music, always taking the rudder of your ship, your mind, your spirit, and keep it hard over to starboard toward the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, As I said, your soul is sinless. Your flesh is not. And your spirit is not sinless. This is why 2 Corinthians chapter 7 verse 1 tells us, having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the sight of God. You know what you have to do every day to do that? You have to renew the spirit of your mind. 
It's a daily process. It's an hourly process. Second by second. That's what you got to do. Because Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 2 and 3 tells us that you can vex your spirit. Proverbs chapter 25, verse 28, you tell me somebody, somebody that's emotional all the time or depressed all the time or has all kinds of emotional problems. Proverbs 25, 28 says, He that hath no rule over his own city is like a city broken, spirit is like a city broken down without walls. You have no defenses, so your emotions run wild. And when you get over to Job chapter 26, verses 1 through 4, he actually asks you as a Christian, whose spirit came from you? Was it your own human spirit? Was it God's spirit? Or was it an unclean spirit? And you see, this is why we talked a while back about not judging according to appearances, but righteous judgments. And the Bible tells you over in 1 John chapter 4, verse 1, that now that you're saved, you've been separated, you have the Holy Spirit of God in you, you have your spirit under control. Uh, when you look at who you hang out with, what you hang out with, what you allow, what don't you allow, now he tells us, try the spirits to see if they're of God. See? Because he says, beloved, not every spirit is of God. And after you're saved, if you've got any kind of IQ spiritually, you'll figure that out in about 10 seconds. And then it doesn't stop there because he tells us in Proverbs chapter 7, 3, My son, keep my words, lay up my commandments with thee. And he, he talks about the fact that you keep doing everything that you're doing with the Word of God and how you keep doing it. And getting God's heart will be the key. You know, getting God, excuse me, getting God's Spirit will be the key that really brings you to the place where it, it really helps you be everything that God wants you to be. Now, let's talk about the third part. We now understand the body, flesh, now we understand the spirit. Now let's talk about your soul. Let's help get that together. We now know that your, your, your spirit is the mind of man. We know that you have two minds. You have two spirits. You have your own mind, you know, and it's your own human spirit. And then you have God's mind and his spirit. And you as a child of God, after saved, have the ability to merge the two. If you don't, you know what the problem. Now we have your soul. So your spirit will be your mind. Now the next part of man will be his soul. And that soul, as we know now, is separated from the flesh at salvation, Colossians 2. And it's sealed by the Holy Spirit of God the moment that happens, Ephesians chapter 4. The soul will be what we call the heart of man in a spiritual sense. You see, you have a physical heart which pumps blood through your body, which is central to your life. And then you have a spiritual body, which is your soul, which is your spiritual heart, which is essential to your eternity. One physical, one spiritual. And of course, when you get saved, you now get separated from your flesh. You're, you get sealed in your soul uh, with the uh, Holy Spirit of God, the Word of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, which is the heart of God. Jesus Christ in you, the hope of glory. You see, the word, 
The world uses the terminology about heart in, in all kinds of ways, but all pointing to the same thing. It always does. We talk about the heart of man. Uh, we talk about the heart of America. And we're always talking about the central part of America. We talk about the heartland of America. We talk about heart attitude. Somebody says, I love you with all my heart. Somebody says, you know what? We need to get to the heart of the problem. Every time you find the way we use the word, it always relates to the central issue of something. And our heart is the key. Your physical heart is the key to your physical life. And your soul, connected now with the word of God, the heart of God, Psalms 119, will now be the central aspect of your spiritual body. We'll say, Boy, he's got a heart for God. I preach. You guys need to get your heart right. I preach about you having the right attitude of heart. What am I talking about? It's about allowing the completeness of God in your life at the time of your salvation to come to full force. Your soul, the heart of you is saved and sealed. You have a flesh that is against everything that God does. And you're going to go either toward the flesh or toward the Holy Spirit of God sealed inside you. And you know what determines that? Your mind. Your spirit. You either line it up to God's spirit and then put your heart toward the heart of God. Or you take your heart and put it toward the flesh. Just that simple. Romans chapter 10 verse 9 and 10 says, If thou shalt confess with your mouth, the Lord Jesus Christ, and believe in thou heart that God has raised him from the dead. Really? This thing here? Boom, 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 boom. That's what you're believing? No. This heart that's pumping blood doesn't believe anything. It's going to quit on you pretty soon. He says, If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead. For with the mouth confession is made unto salvation, and with the heart man believeth unto righteousness. You see, that's your soul. That's your soul being separated at the time of your salvation and believing on what God said. And now, as this heart here is the main function of your physical life to keep you alive, your eternal heart is your soul that's now separated. This one with the Holy Spirit of God is going to keep you alive for eternity. See how it works? Now, here's how it works. The heart of man spiritually, your soul, will also be your conscience. This is the whole crux of the sermon, but I had to give it all out to you that we got here. We talk about consciousness. We talk about unconsciousness. Bottom line is, <coughs> consciousness or unconsciousness is either you being aware of something <clears throat> or unaware of something. So your conscience is what makes you aware of something. Let's get that defined quickly. So a man's conscience will make him aware of some things with God. Now, how does he do that? An unsaved man. Because 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 3 says that when God made man unsaved, he's incomplete. His body and his flesh, uh, his soul and the flesh are stuck together. And his spirit is dead. 
How in the world is God going to reach him? Because 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 3 says, For as much as ye are manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not in tables of stone, but in fleshy tables of your heart. You know what he did? When he made man, he put a certain element of aspect of the Word of God in your heart. He says in Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, For when the Gentiles which have not the law, they don't have a law, do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law or a law unto themselves. You know what he's saying? He's saying you can go into Africa someplace and you won't find anybody that's ever seen a missionary, ever had a Bible, and know nothing about the Christ, but yet they know it's wrong to steal. They know it's wrong to take another man's wife. They know it's wrong to kill. They have in their own society that has no Bible, no missionary, no nothing, but they have the basic fundamentals of the Ten Commandments in a pagan society. Why? Because the Word of God is written on the tables of their hearts. That's why. And that's what he says. Which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience. There it is. Bearing witness and their thoughts, the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. You see, inside your soul, the heart of man, God wrote the Word of God on the tables of your heart. And that's where God starts with you. And that's where your conscience is. And when God began to deal with you about your salvation, He started with the Word of God written on the tables of your heart, and He dealt with your conscience because that conscience had already told you. Even though you may not want to admit it, it told you what was right and what was wrong. You really didn't need a preacher to tell you your life was not right. You already knew it. You just didn't want me to tell you. You didn't need somebody to say that what you're doing is wrong. I've had people come into me that gotten saved or been part of this church that said, you know what, I was looking for something. I was looking for something, uh, you know, long before and didn't know what it was. I, I wanted something real. I wanted this. I wanted that. I was looking for this. And they find, and God leads you to a place that takes you to the next level. But you do, do you know why you started thinking those things? Because in your conscience, in your heart, the Word of God is already written on the fleshy tables. And the Holy Spirit of God just used that. That's where he starts. He starts with, and then you either, well, we'll get that in a minute. You, you accepted it, you moved toward it, and here you are. I've always used the example that, you know, an unsaved man is like a guy who's trapped in a cave someplace and he's completely lost. And he's been in there for two or three days. And, you know, he wants out. But he doesn't know how to get out. And suddenly, after two or three days of total darkness, way down the shaft, he sees a light. And it's the rescue party that's coming to get him. Now, you know what he's going to do? He's going to do what all you did when you were in darkness of your life and your world, and then you saw that little light. You moved toward the light. And the closer he moved toward the light, pretty soon he gets hooked up with the rescue party, and he's saved. 
when you in the darkness of your life before you were saved and you saw that light way down there, that little thing in your heart that was telling you what you were wrong and you started to move toward that light, you know what happened? You messed the greatest rescue party on the planet and you got saved. Now, let's take the other guy. He just killed 28 people, robbed 67 banks and he's, he's on the run. And the cops are all over the place. He runs into this cave and he hides way back in this cave. He's crouched down, hiding, and all of a sudden he sees the light coming into that cave, and he knows it's the guys who are going to arrest him. You know what he does? Because he's in sin and he doesn't want to do what's right, he gets farther back in the cave, away from the light. That's all it is, kids. You either were in sin and saw the light and said, I need out of this mess and moved toward the light, or you said, I'm in sin and I'm going to stay in this mess and you moved away from the light. But that light is the Word of God written on the tables of your heart, your conscience. Now, having said that, he writes those things on the table of your heart and in Proverbs chapter 7, verse Two and three, or one, two and three says, My son, keep thy words and lay up my commandments with thee. Keep my commandments and live, and my law as the apple of thine eye. Here it comes. Bind them upon thy fingers, write them upon the table of thy heart. See, it doesn't stop there. Once you realize that the law is written on the tables of your heart, when you get saved, you keep adding to the tables of your heart. You keep filling it up. You start out unsaved with God giving you His Word on the tables of your heart. It leads you to conviction, like it did to those guys in John chapter 8, in your conscience. You then get saved. You get a new heart. The Holy Spirit of God seals you, your soul, under the day of redemption. And now God's Spirit with your spirit to make the right decisions in life by His Spirit bearing witness with your spirit and you're on your way. Simply how it works. And you know, you continue to bind those through your fingers and write those on the table of your heart, but know this. When you set your mind, your spirit, against God's Word, and you give your spirit to the world, then you violate your conscience and in time, as the Bible says in 1 Timothy 1-2, you'll sear your conscience with a hot iron. That's what he said. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly <clears throat> in a latter time that some shall depart from the faith, giving here to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. You go to sin so long, you reject the Word of God so long, and you sear your conscience that the Word of God written on those tables, you bury it so deep in the filth and the ungodliness of this world that it can't touch you anymore. That can be true of an unsaved man, and that can be true of a saved man. Because your conscience and your spirit, your spirit is deciding on what you do with it, whether the Word of God or the things of the world. Where are you going to put it to? Are you going to put it to the Spirit of God or the Spirit of the world? And that determines. When you put it to the world, you bury yourself, you rationalize yourself, you quit coming to church, you don't read your Bible, you stay away from people, you hate sermons that, that go against what you think, 
and in time nothing touches you. Now, watch this. In John chapter 8, <clears throat> when Jesus nails them and they leave, the damage had already been done in their heart. They had already seared their conscience. Say, how do you know that? Because they saw what he wrote. It, convinced, it convicted them in their conscience. And they leave, but they never got right. See? When you preach the word of God and people don't like it, they don't like what you say, they'll leave, but they'll never get right. They'll just find another church where they can start over again and play the game for another six, seven, eight, nine months and get mad there and go someplace else. You know why? And in time, they sear their conscience. It's just that simple. And you hear the famous last words. Well, you know, we're going to take a break from church for a while. Oh, you know, you hear the famous last words. You know, well, you know, uh, uh, it's a thing where, you know, we just, uh, we're going to find another church. You've already been in 10. The problem is you'll leave like they did, but you'll never change. You see, the greatest aspect and truth of the Word of God is the fact that it changes you. And it changes you on the outside. But there's only one way God can change where you go and what you do with your flesh and given the honor and glory to go to it. There's only one day God can change you on the outside, and that is first He has to change you on the inside. He has to separate your soul from your flesh. He has to seal it with the Holy Spirit of God. He has to quicken, that's the word, quicken your spirit with His Spirit. And then you take that spirit and you bear witness with his spirit that you are the sons of God. You bind them on your fingers. You continue writing on the tables of your heart. And you take this wicked flesh that wants to go against God. And by crucifying it through the word of God and giving your life to Christ as he gave it for you, we get a work done for the Lord. Any other way? It'll never happen. And it's as simple as that. Romans chapter 6, verse 13, and I close with this. Neither yield your members, your hands, your feet, your head, your eyes, your nose, your mouth, your legs. Neither yield your members, talking to Christians, as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin. But yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. How do you do that? By recognizing what took place inside you that changed the outside of you in the direction of life. And you do that by getting your soul circumcised spiritually, by getting your spirit come alive, and then you take your mind and your heart and you put them to God's mind and heart and off you go to serve the Lord. Well, we'll hold up there. I'm going to have here a quick meeting. If you're somebody that is not a part of our church, you, you're welcome to stay, but if you don't want to stay and you got to go, we're good. Uh, but I guess they're going to bring in the Timothy people back here and the nursery people and then we'll get... 
going here. Don't forget, right after I'm done here, there'll be a meeting for the folks that are going to get baptized. 